Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ophil. Marca Mesut Ophil. Bellerín, otro defensor, otro disparo, Monreal, gol. Marca el futbolista español, marca Nacho Monreal. Pim, pam, pum. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gutterblog. James, good morning to you. Oh, actually, before you say anything in reply to that, I just want to make it clear that when I say good morning... Mm. I don't mean to say that afternoons can't also be good. And evenings right. and nights, they can sometimes be good. I mean, they can be good and bad. I'm just making a greeting at this particular time of day. So I didn't want that to be misconstrued in any way. Well, yeah, also we'd hate to alienate all the people who are having bad mornings. Yes. Know, it is important to kind of lay these things down early on. By the way, I, I wanted to clear something up because... On the Ask Us, you've had a lot of great guests in recent weeks. You know, people like David Ornstein, you've had uh, Clive, Tim Stillman, Philippe Claire, And I think, you know, it's raised a real question mark over my future. You know, I've not been on the Ask Us as regularly and maybe people have been enjoying the other guests. So I don't know if you've seen, but I've just put a tweet out um, and it, I just said, when you do a podcast, you don't do it because of the awards, the listeners or history. You, you do it because you found yourself somewhere there, found a place where you belong. Hashtag oh. Amy Lawrence. And I, all, all I want to say is some people may feel that's a cynical move on my part that I'm trying to sort of play to you there, you know, and maybe... Get more appearances. On, get more appearances, you know, lay it on a bit thick to sort of make everyone feel the affinity I have with this podcast. But I assure you, those feelings are entirely genuine and not in any way cynically motivated. I just love this podcast, Andrew. I but just love this podcast. I guess I have to take you at face value, James, if this weekend has taught me nothing else. <laughs> it's that we should believe everything everybody says at all times, once that suits our particular mindset, of course. Um, what a weekend. I, you know, I saw this uh, podcast in my diary a while ago, and I sort of thought, mm. oh, we haven't got a game. How... Strange, that'll be a curious one. Because obviously you, you covered the Barté game on the Ask Cost on Friday. Yeah. I was like, what on earth are we going to talk about? So thank you very much to Meza Ozil for providing some content. Oh my goodness. I mean, genuinely, what a weekend. And I have to say, it was topped off yesterday by going for lunch in a restaurant where the waiter looked exactly like Mustafi. Oh, my word. And it was a terrible... Maybe it was him. They had a weekend off, didn't they, a lot of the players? <laughs> they were all going here, there and everywhere, flying off to various parts of the world, taking some time out. I mean, I mm. guess Unai Emery, what did he say? Did he say, lads, just go take your mind off everything, 
you know, come back chilled, relaxed and ready to go? Or was it like, get out of my fucking sight? All of you, get out of my sight. I don't want to see you for a few days. I don't know which it was. But yeah, it was actually the, the waiter looking like Mustafi was absolutely in line with the food and the service we got in that particular restaurant. So there you go. Um, but yeah, it has been it has been a strange, crazy, mad weekend online which i think uh you know we have to separate in some ways from from real life and genuinely there were lots of people who wanted to engage and talk about the 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 tweets you did and the articles i wrote and wanted to engage with them in a calm sensible rational way and whether they agreed or disagreed were quite prepared to do that which is fantastic but there were also some people out there who are um, not prepared to do that in any way. I mean, my mentions yesterday on Twitter, uh, eventually I just turned it off because I was uh, uh, incorporated in this long running, it went on all day, literally from morning till sometime in late afternoon, these people were arguing about, I don't know what, it got to the point where it was basically me being a cunt and how I'm a wanker and all that kind of stuff. Um ironically from the people who position themselves as super positive you know the super positive people they're uh, super super they're positive the worst. <laughs> yeah well they spend all day on twitter uh, abusing people and being negative about other people as a way to sort of i don't know highlight their own positivity I, you know it's obviously the irony is lost on them there but it's just like fucking hell guys it was just my opinion on a thing that Mesut Ozil did in the context of what's going on this season, you know, I don't know how it becomes open season for for the kind of vitriol and abuse that 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 was given. I mean, let me ask you this, and let's let's try and get to the nuts and bolts of it. Why do you hate Mesut Ozil, and why do you have an agenda against him? Uh, listen, I want to word this very carefully because I want to make sure I get it right. Um, I hate Mesut Ozil, and I think he looks like a melting gnome. That's yeah, and that's the end of it. Okay, well that's that's, that's my statement on the matter. That should calm everything down. Uh, I mean, at Gunner Blog, do get in touch. <laughs> I look forward to hearing from you. No, I mean, uh, it is quite extraordinary. I mean, we uh, the 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 uh, people who make content as well. I think we experience a particularly bizarre phenomenon where. I feel like people respond to you without having engaged with or read or watched or listened to what you actually make. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. it feels like their their responses are so derived from a, an instantaneous reaction that you're like, you can't possibly have sort of come down this road with me because, you know, you, you I think you would appreciate there's more nuance to it than that. Mm. But I, I do think as well that the vast majority of people aren't like that. The vast majority of people mm. who listen to this show aren't like that. I agree. To a, cer to a certain extent, I sort of feel like I almost, although it's sort of part of the Arsenal fan experience, I'm a little bit loath to dedicate too much kind of airtime to them because it's like, you know, there's crazy people everywhere. I guess so. I guess so. And it just struck me today that, like, this was just football. You know, when people yeah. talk about things online that are, are actually... Uh, of crucial importance to people and society and they express opinions on them and you see it in the replies and stuff that they get, you know, um, it must be a nightmare if you're talking about things. That, this is just football, guys, you know. Um, I think there's like a threshold, like once you have like over 
a thousand followers, say on Twitter, you know, a certain percentage of them are going to be a bit intense. And, you know, that's sort of the way it goes. I, I, I do think as well, the whole situation hasn't been helped by the fact that there hasn't been a game, has there? So there's been nothing to kind of distract people. Mm. We're, we're not in good form. We had a terrible result on Thursday. So I think tensions are maybe running a little bit higher. But it has been really surprising and really... Uh, I'm not going to say shocking, but yeah, I think it's been startling to me quite how much uh, infighting and enmity this has all provoked. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, if if it was a case, uh, let me just make this very clear. I don't hate Mesut Ozil. Absolutely no, not. I, by the way, I, I should just, in case, you know, I have myself in some real trouble, I don't hate Mesut Ozil either. No, I don't hate Mesut Ozil. I think uh, I've... Uh, I've been a backer of his for for uh, quite a, a long time. Actually, since he joined, I you know there always and have been for quite some time accusations about his performances and his body language, and you know he doesn't look like he cares and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like we've gone over that in this podcast countless times. That you know mm. people read sometimes too much into things like that. That all of a sudden Ozil shrugging his shoulders means he doesn't care, and we've we've not bought into that in any way, but you can't look at the whole situation and say there's nothing going on, that somehow this is not relevant or it's not important. It is important because he is our our best paid player. He is our biggest star. We're not getting anywhere close to what we should be getting from him on the pitch, uh, particularly in relation to what we're paying him off the pitch. And you can separate those two things if you want, but that's, you know, it all is part of the, the story when we have to analyse what's going on. You know, he signed a, a new contract last January. No, I think it was maybe early February. It was right, after the, right yeah. after the transfer window closed. And I was happy that he signed a new contract because we just lost Alexis. And I felt like if we were going to rebuild under a new manager, which in February I was convinced that it was going to be Arsene Wenger's last season... I thought, well, how do you attract a new manager or how do you attract new players if you're the club that's just lost its manager of 22 years, it's just lost Alexis Sanchez, it's just lost Mesut Ozil? You know, how do you convince people that this is a club worth coming to? So in that sense, I was absolutely delighted he was going to stay. I had some reservations about the size of his pay packet, but, you know, those weren't... um, you know, I didn't decide or you didn't decide or he didn't decide to take that much money. Arsenal decided to give him that much money. But since then, we haven't really seen what we expected from Mesut Ozil, right? The end of last season was a bust, a complete write-off with his back injury ahead of the World Cup. And you, you can talk about how much the the uh, you know the end of the Wenger era played into that and how much you can read into anybody's individual performance during that period. But, you know, he came back from the World Cup and it was a difficult time for him. I don't think he was unsupported by Arsenal by any means. He was told, this is your family. Unai Emery said it a number of times. It's like a family. We'll work, uh, you know, to, to make him feel loved and welcome. And, you know, the, like this is a place where he belongs, if you like. Um mm. But, you know, this season, he hasn't played particularly well, bar one or two occasions, and the coach might have played into that. So I I don't understand why a discussion about this is immediately countered with people who, who, uh, you know, I get people who are fans of players, 
But even if you're a fan of somebody, they can do things wrong or they can uh, find themselves in a funk in some way. And it's not it's not helpful just to sort of say, well, because you're saying this about Ozil, you hate him or you have an agenda. I mean, I wrote that in the post on Saturday and within like three tweets, somebody said, well, you know, you're only writing that because you hate Mesut Ozil. I go, what, why would you think I hate him? It's, it's fucking crazy. Yeah, it's really strange. And it does feel a little bit like there are some people, and it's a real minority, who um, it feels like they almost support Mesut Ozil above Arsenal, genuinely. Like, I, 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 there are plenty of people who think it's the best thing for Arsenal to do to play Mesut Ozil. And uh, they're completely, from a tactical and football point of view, I think that's a legitimate viewpoint to have. Um, probably correct one. But uh, it does feel like there are other people who it's like their dedication to the player is so extreme. And I almost feel... I wonder if it's a consequence of, you know, you've went into bat from Ezra many times against people like Neil Ashton. I almost wonder if the kind of criticism that he came under for so long has developed a defensiveness around him mm. that that plays its part in this reaction. You know, we're so used to, by default, defending Meza Ozil. Um, and now it's within people within our own support base who maybe are like, well, look, maybe his time's up here. There's a kind of almost... Uh, it's a reflex now to, to jump yeah. and defend him. Um, so maybe that's part of it too. Yeah, I I, but also the fact that we're playing poorly and... Sure. Uh, in a way, like he was in and out of the team during the unbeaten run. You know, he, he was yeah. not a regular part of the team in the first half of this season. And we were picking up points. We were beating Spurs. We were going unbeaten, winning streaks. And people could make peace with it then. You know, I think results determine everything. I really do. I think it's so crucial. You know, people have legitimate gripes with performance of late. And I do understand that. But I suspect if we were winning, those gripes would be a lot quieter uh much as they were in the first half of the season you know people were like mm, i'm not sure i'm not convinced but fundamentally if you win you kind of get away with stuff and we're just not winning at the moment yeah exactly we've lost seven out of 14 games you know we've got a, a very important run in if we want to try and get into the top four and everybody can envisage arsenal being better with Mesut ozil in top form in the team mm -hmm. you know i don't think there's whether you're a fan of ozil or not if you have him at the top of his form in your team, you have more chance of winning games and scoring goals and creating chances. Everybody can see that. But it's also in some ways um, like when a player is out injured. You know when a player is out injured and everybody goes, Ooh, we miss him. And yeah, yeah. as the weeks go on, we miss him more and more. And his quality becomes greater and greater the longer he's out. Particularly yeah, by the time Rob Holding comes back, he will be Cannavaro in our yeah. estimation, essentially. Yeah, you know, and that's, you know, it's it's completely understandable. I get it. And we all want to see the best players on the pitch. And we'd all like to see Arsenal playing the kind of football that we associate with with this club and the way it's been run over the last, you know, 20 odd years where we develop this Arsenal-esque style of play, if you like, which is attacking football. And we're not seeing any of that. Mm. We're not seeing enough of it anyway. And when you are, you know, frustrated with results and frustrated with performances, you're looking for things to change. And he is very clearly somebody who could potentially come in and change that, even if during this season there have been plenty of games in which he's played, during which we have not played well also. And that kind of gets a little bit pushed to one side. 
you know, all of a sudden it feels like Mesut Ozil is, uh, you know, we've been bitten by a big bastard angry snake and Mesut Ozil has got to come along and suck the poison out or he's the antidote, one or the other, whichever particular image goes best in your mind. Yeah. Do you want Mesut Ozil to suck the poison out of you? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's a question I've been pondering all weekend. Yeah. Now, you, you make a good point. I mean, he started 13 Premier League games, and I don't remember many of them uh, for his sort of startling performances. You know, I remember, of course, like everybody, the Leicester game. I'm sure there are others in which he, he did well enough, but they don't spring to mind. Um, so I think this idea that he hasn't sort of been given enough rope uh, is probably not quite correct. I do think that he is being uh, underused. For example, like, I don't think there's a justifiable logic for not having him on the subs bench, really. Uh, I, I maybe do against Barté because like Socrates, he hadn't trained, you know, he'd done one mm. training session. So I think that's a bit of a red herring, actually. But as a rule, if you're putting your El Nenis or your Enketias on the bench ahead of Ozil, I, I don't think that's smart. No, I don't either. I don't either. And it, it it begs the question, you know, what is exactly going on? What is going on behind the scenes that we're not aware of? Because I can't believe for one second that there isn't something that we don't really know about. And if it's Arsenal not saying anything because they don't want to create an issue and Mesut Ozil is not going to say anything because, you know, his side is not going to, uh, create an issue, uh, you know, beyond what I thought was a fairly cynical tweet. And I think you shared that point of view. Other people didn't. That's absolutely fine. Um, it just makes me wonder what the fuck is going on. Because I, I listened to um, Arsenal Vision podcast. I was listening to the start of it yesterday. I haven't got through it yet, but the one after the Bate game. And Clive makes the very, you know, salient point. If it's, a, if it's entirely about football or only about football, then he's in the team. Mm. You know, but it's got well, to be more. It is about more than that. And, you know, it is about money, I think, uh, for, in large part. And I think that that is probably somewhat unfair on us. Well, you know, he didn't force Arsenal to give him that contract. It was given to him yeah. freely. Uh, I do think, though, that a lot's changed since then. I mean, I think, you know, when you talk about, oh, people were happy when he signed the contract. Yeah. I don't think we realised quite how skint we were. <laughs> When no. he signed the contract. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I don't think we realised that, A, we were going to be 100% bought out by Stan Kroenke, uh, and B, that we were going to head into, you know, a January transfer window where we were told you can't spend any money. And uh, and and, all, and C, that we were going to have to sort of essentially pull out of the Aaron Ramsey deal, seemingly on financial uh, basis. Yeah, so, but uh, yeah, let me let me just sort of uh, back you up a little bit there in the sense that let's remember what happened last January. We got rid of Alexis and we brought in Mkhitaryan on 200 grand a week and we spent 60 million pounds on Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and paying him 200,000 pounds a week and then Mesut Ozil is given a massive new contract which is essentially double what anybody else in the in the club earns. Right, so well, I know, I know it's not double, but it's whatever, seventy-five percent more than the two other highest earners, who are Mkhitaryan and Aubameyang, mm. and that, in some ways, speaks to an intent, does it not? A, we're dealing with 
uh, an agent like Mino Raiola, okay, that's a sea change for Arsenal because we never yeah. dealt with him under under Wenger. We're going to get into bed with the big boys. We're willing to pay £60 million for a 29-year-old because we feel like he's going to score us a load of goals and we're willing to pay him a lot of money. Uh, you know, the Mkhitaryan thing, that's what you get when you deal with Mino Raiola. You're going to bring in a player who's going to earn a lot of money. He's going to get a great deal for his player. But it sort of spoke to like, okay, is this the way we're going? Is this the way we're going to continue to go? You know, not necessarily bringing in 29-year-olds on big wages, but you you... You didn't, or I certainly didn't consider the fact that making that kind of an outlay on these players was going to absolutely hamstring us within a few months. Well, what changed? What changed? I mean, the obvious thing that changed is that is the control of the club. Yeah. Because um, I remember when Ezra signed that deal, my instant reaction was, I think, something like, oh, Arsenal behaving like a very big club here. Uh, but that's not necessarily something they've been able to carry on and continue with. Um, and I I would say as well, there is a football element to it. I mean, if you think about the amount of money invested in Aubameyang, Mkhitaryan, Ozil, I don't think it was unrealistic to be like, well, these guys will be the three guys who are going to kind of spearhead our mm. attack moving forward. And it hasn't panned out really like that at all. You know, that's not even a, a trio I I remember combining to particularly good effect at any point, apart from in maybe Aubameyang's debut. So, you know, it, it, there are football elements, there are financial elements, but I think given the constraints that we are seemingly under, and I would love those to change, don't get me wrong, I would love a different owner, someone who's prepared to put money in, but that's not what we've got. It does appear to me that the coach and the executive hierarchy, much as they looked at the Aaron Ramsey situation and were like, do you know what, this is not something that we can commit to, feel like the Ozil contract, which has been committed to, is essentially a mistake. Yeah, that's all well and good, and I get that. But I can't also get my head around the idea that there is a concerted effort between Emery and Sanyehi and the board and um, the Cronkies to sort of victimise, if you like, mm. a player in order to make his life so uncomfortable that he he leaves the club. I feel like there are more constructive ways of making that happen, right? While at the yeah. same time, not denying yourself the services of a really, really talented player who on his day, et cetera, et cetera, you know, is somebody who can change games and who can oil the Arsenal engine, if you like. You know, so it it it, it doesn't make sense to me that they've sat down and said, let's treat Mesut Ozil like a cunt just because we gave him a £350,000 a week deal. He didn't do anything, you know, um, to, to merit that kind of treatment. So I'm not sure that that makes sense on any level. So it just makes me think that there's something more going on. I think that's uh, a reasonable assertion. And I mean, that certainly there's more going on than we know. You know, we've heard bits and pieces. We've heard, you know, stories in the press about bust-ups or training ground rows. Or, yeah. You know, it's not difficult to surmise that maybe uh, Unai Emery kind of like a- to re- relegate Ozil from being a starter to someone who was on an equal pedestal with everyone else in the squad sometimes in the team sometimes wasn't and I think 
perhaps, and this is a guess, perhaps that didn't sit particularly well with the player. Yeah. And so... Who was used to being given preferential treatment by Arsene Wenger, and that, whether people want to believe it or not, is a fact. He was yeah. given days off. He was given leeway uh, in, in certain elements. You know, he was given that, you know, the, the arm around the shoulder. You know, and sometimes maybe he needed to kick up the arse. But Emery has come in with a really difficult job to do and has said from the start, everybody's the same. Everybody gets treated the same. You know, and that's you can understand why a, a new coach would want to come in and do that. And I do think there's an element of that not sitting particularly right with Ozil. Yeah, and I think, you know, he, Emery reportedly had his problems with Neymar last season. That's something that gets brought up a lot. But it's not like he didn't play Neymar. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think he, you know, he didn't play Hatton Ben Arthur. Ben Arthur was like really ostracised and sort of on the fringes of the squad. But when it came to the club's marquee player, it wasn't like he said, well, I'm not even going to use him and I'm going to cut off my nose despite my own face to that extent. Well, he probably wouldn't have been allowed, given the right. relationship between um, between Neymar and the owners of PSG. I would say that was absolutely forbidden. There was probably a clause in Neymar's contract which said he had to play at all times. So even if Emery wanted to leave him out, he wouldn't have been permitted. I mean, how could you um, sanction that kind of uh, treatment of a player who you've just spent £200 million on? Or loaned, you think loaned the £200 million to buy himself, you know, I don't know, whatever yeah, way that would Go on, what theory? What do, you, what do you think of the theory that uh, Emery's treatment of Ozil is somehow a symptom of his issue with Neymar at PSG? Do you think there's any mileage in that? I would be surprised if that situation didn't colour Emery's thinking when it comes to to star players, but I think the Neymar situation is so absurd and so ludicrous, it doesn't really translate to the Mesut Ozil situation. Mm. You know, if he wants to create a an environment where there's equanimity within the squad, you know, um, proper competitive environment in which footballers can work, you can't you can't treat anybody differently. You just can't do it. You know, how can Emery come in to Arsenal and say, oh, you're Mesut Ozil. Okay, you have a day off when you want, or you can train a bit less when you want. You can't do that because immediately it sets him apart from everybody else. I think it probably damages the the reputation or the, what, what, what's the word I'm looking for here? How people perceive Emery, you know, from a discipline. Yeah, his authority. His authority, yeah, exactly. So you you can understand why he's come in. I, I don't know that the Neymar situation has fed into this, really. Um, again, you know, we're, we're just speculating, uh, but I can understand his approach. I can understand yeah. his approach. You know, now, though, you know, you see or you wonder if the treatment of Ozil from, or what's going on with Ozil, um, regardless of who, who is who is culpable or, you know, where the blame lies, and I think it's, you know, across the board here, we're not pointing the fingers at any one person. I think there's, there's an issue across the board with the coach, with the player, and everything else. But, you know, when you're a team that's not playing particularly well and you need to get results and you're looking at a talent like Mesut Ozil not playing... You know, as a player, I, I do wonder if that is going to inf influence or impact the dressing room as well. So well, it's finding the, the, the balance, right? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, we say that Emery comes in and his kind of ethos is to treat everyone equally. He's not treating Mesut Ozil the same as everybody else right now. You know, it would it would appear. So I think, you know, we... I can't stress this enough. We are trying to fill in the gaps here and it's really difficult because we don't have the full facts. Uh, and I don't suspect we will, probably until Mesut Ozil's left the club. But uh, it feels like... that. There was some damage done to that relationship, and that has not been mended. You know, mm. some some sort of teething issues between the coach and the player, I think, escalated to the point where the coach kind of feels, well, given those issues and given the financial element, uh, maybe it's best to have a parting of the ways. And I think that you know, you get to that end point. However, whatever you imagine happened in between is that sort of where we've arrived. Yeah, I think. I do, I do feel, uh, I think I do feel a bit sorry for Mesut Ozil because I personally believe that what's happening is almost a kind of strategic, it's as much a strategic thing as anything else. You know, I think that there is, I understand your uh, sort of objection to this idea, but I do think that there is a kind of strategic thinking of, you know, we probably need to move this guy on and I think making it clear to him that he's not going to play for us is part of that strategy. Um, and in that respect, I feel sorry for him. You know, he's not necessarily done anything wrong, per se, to to bring that about. But mm. that's football, right? Managers, <coughs> managers uh, decide for or against players all the time. Yeah. You know, Petr Cech's effectively been forced into retirement, but, you know, that's the way it goes. And, uh, yeah, I, I I do feel for Mesut Ozil, but I also feel... Well, okay. Go on. What would you do with Mesut Ozil now? I would... Look, I don't know how possible this is. I don't think his tweet will have helped. I, I don't think it will either, to be honest. And maybe it will. Maybe, it, you know, Raul Sanyei and Unai Emery will be in their office and they'll see that come through on their timeline. And they'll shed a single tear and think, what have, we been, what have we done here, guys? What have we done? But I don't think that's what they'll think. I think they'll say, you know, I caramba. <laughs> what's, this, uh, what's this guy done now? So I, 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 but what I would love to do, if it were in my power, would be to get them together and be like, look, this is clearly fucked, right? This is clearly done. Mm-hmm. But there are three months left in the season. We have certain goals. You know, we can't guarantee we're going to pick you every week, but there are times when we will want to use you from the start or from the bench. And for God's sake, let's just sort of, you know, make the best of it. Yeah. That's what I would say. Yeah. The Labour Relations Commission needs to get involved here in some way. You know, there has to be, for the benefit of Arsenal as a football club and as a team, there has to be some kind of solution to this, even if it is only short term. Even if when... Unai Emery is speaking to Macedoza. He can sit there with his fingers crossed and think, you're stinky, I don't like you. And Emery can do the same. You know, the the goals that Arsenal as a football club have should be common to both Emery and to Ozil, right? Yeah. And that's where, I, I, that's where the solution needs to be found because there's a top four to play for, which is going to be very difficult, but it's still there. There's potentially a European trophy to play for and... We know with that European trophy comes another invisible trophy, 
but still a trophy all the same, which is entry into next season's Champions League. Mm -hmm. So if there's nobody at this football club who can sit down with Emery and Ozil and Ozil's agent and whoever the fuck else needs to be involved and broker a truce or sort out something that will help us win football games, then we should be really, really very worried because otherwise this is just going to get worse and worse between now and the end of the season. And I think it will be reflected on the pitch, off the pitch, and it's going to become even more of a mess than it already is. So I hope that that person is Raul Sanyehi, and I hope he can like knock their fucking heads together and get them to sort it out because we need to win football matches beyond anything else, beyond any ego, beyond any uh, discipline. But, you know, we have to. We have mm. to. And that's what needs to happen. And they need yeah. to buy into it. I, I agree. And I think that to not use Mesut Ozil at all is crazy. And I, I'm not actually someone who would play him every game. You know, I, we've got the Spurs away match coming up. I'm not convinced... Mesut Ozil will be in my starting eleven for that match. But our next game is a home tie against Barté Borisov, who we know will sit deep in a defensive block, who we have a 1-0 deficit against. It occurs to me that it's kind of an ideal scenario. Uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Those are the kind of games where you give him uh, a start and hopefully he can produce the way he did against Leicester. You know? Um, yeah. Because, uh, and, go on. No, and I was going to say, and, and for me, that's sort of as far as it goes. I mean, I, I don't, I, I completely think that, look, if Emery stays beyond this summer, and maybe we'll get onto this later, but no. I think he will. <laughs> I think he will. I think he'll be here for, for two years, I would guess. Um, I don't necessarily see Ozil being here next season. And personally, I don't have a huge issue with that. There are loads of reasons why, but I think, you know, maybe the time has come for a pie of the ways, if it can be arranged financially. Uh, but that's not possible right now. I think the, the Chinese window is, a, is closing imminently. So I think it's all about, you know, focusing on trying to actually win some football matches. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope that that's the, the common goal that everybody shares. You know, throughout the squad, Mesut Ozil, Unai Emery, Raul Sanyehi, the Cronkies, you know, uh, as much as they give a fuck one way or the other. But, you know, to allow this to continue without some sort of res resolution and maybe something a bit more public than what we've got so far, you know? Um, what does that look like? I don't I know. I don't that. know because, you know, when Unai Emery says he's leaving Mesut Ozil out for tactical reasons, sometimes you can say, OK, if it's a, a game away against one of the uh, big teams, the big six teams, mm. where there have been questions over his performances in the past, and you say, I'm leaving Mesut Ozil out of the starting 11 for tactical reasons, uh, but he's on the bench if we need him, I think people can buy into that, right? They can see some logic into it. When Mesut Ozil is left out of the team for tactical reasons, uh, for a game against West Ham or Bournemouth, for example, when you tell people that a game against Bournemouth is too physical for Mesut Ozil, mm. when Bournemouth are according to Premier League stats, the least physical team in the Premier League, people don't believe it. They don't mm. believe it. And I think that's what feeds into it as well. You know, we're not getting reasonable explanations for some of these absences. You know, back trouble, a knee injury, 
you know, he's unwell or he's ill. And people roll their eyes to heaven because it's happened so many times in the past. So I don't know quite how they manage this situation publicly, but I think part of the frustration comes from the sense that, A, we all know what, or we all know that there's something going on. We know, we know right? We're not stupid. We know there's more to this. And B, when we are being told snippets of information, they're kind of bullshit. So we don't like being not necessarily lied to, but... You know, it's frustrating when you know there's something going on and you're not being told anything like the truth. So I think it might be important for the club to try and clarify that in some way. But then communication from this football club over the last number of years, um, certainly with like I feel if Wenger had been the coach, we'd have a better idea of what's going on. Because he's, you know, he was uh, more willing to talk and more open about things. You know, even if in press conferences, he clearly hid things uh, and, and said, no, there's no issue there when we, <laughs> we, we knew there was. But I think there would be, at this point, somebody would have sat down and gone, listen, what the fuck is going on here? And we would have got something. But we're not getting anything, you know, through official channels or back channels beyond speculation. And that's part of the frustration, too. I think, I mean, interestingly, I'm not sure, and this is no criticism of the journalists involved, but I feel like uh, Emery perhaps isn't being asked these questions directly that frequently. But I think as well, you know, he's, he bats them back with a very straight back. So yeah. It's sort of difficult to get around it. I think, you know, if you want to let information out about this scenario, you don't have to do it via an official statement on the club website. You know, you just need to tell... David Ornstein or John Cross. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you know, you can. There are plenty of ways for a club to communicate something without having to have a press conference about it. Yeah. Uh, that can give the fans at least more clarity about what's going on. Uh, what I wanted to ask you was, you know, we've both said the ideal is they sit down, they get their heads together. You know, Raoul sort of bangs them together, says, "Sort this out, boys." You know, let's pull together for a common cause for a few months. What do we infer if that doesn't happen? Because it hasn't happened so far. And it's difficult to see exactly what might change that would suddenly cause that to happen. A run of poor form might change it. <laughs> yeah, maybe. You know, um, what do we infer if it doesn't happen? Um, either an unwillingness on the part of one or the other or both to yeah. make it happen uh, or for the issue that is creating this problem in the first place to be so serious that there's no coming back from it. Yeah. That's yeah, that, the that's only it, thing I basically. can think of. Uh, and that's my concern is that it hasn't happened until this point. It makes me think that one of those things may be true, that one of these parties is so intransigent and so stubborn, uh, one or both, let's say, uh, that they're not prepared to meet halfway. Um, or alternatively, that whatever's gone on behind the scenes is so bad that there is no way back from it. OK, but what about let's let's try and look at the Ozil tweet from a different point of view then or from a different side. Yeah. Could it be construed as a way of provoking a response from Arsenal if he feels he hasn't been getting one? Maybe. Maybe. Uh, One thing I was struck by in the tweet is when he says, when you start supporting a football club, you don't support it because of, amongst other things, a player. Um, There was a certain irony in that for me mm. because it feels like there are a few Arsenal fans around you that feel that attached to the player but 
I think that, uh, yes, I mean, maybe it, it does call it to a head. I don't believe, you know, even in my least cynical interpretation of it, I don't believe he's just tweeting it and would tweet it any day of the week, any day of the year. You know, I love Arsenal and that's great. I, I do believe it's response to the situation. I think yeah. it's impossible to to think otherwise. And even if it's not cynical, it's him It's at, at, at your most... Um, generous? Generous, yes. It's him saying, look, you're not picking me, but I'm not going anywhere. Do you know what I mean? Like, I like it here, I don't want to leave. Yeah, uh, that's apparently very true. Yeah. From everybody I'm I speak to, he loves London and I'm sure he enjoys being at Arsenal. Otherwise, he wouldn't have signed. Yeah, he could have gone elsewhere, I, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure he could have gone elsewhere. Maybe he didn't have any offers in January, but you're telling me that if in the summer Mesut Ozil had been available on a free transfer, there wouldn't have been his pick of clubs? So you I know, I don't think he would have been a free agent come September 1st. No, no absolutely not. Absolutely not. So, you know, I... I my response to the tweet was I, I, I did think it was cynical. It wasn't me necessarily saying he doesn't like Arsenal or he doesn't like it here because, you know, it doesn't make any sense. If he didn't like it, he would have left, particularly when he mm. only had six months left on his contract and he's got a very canny agent who could have got him a deal anywhere. So it was not that. It was about the timing of it and it was about the, the, the context of it and when it came just after a defeat to Bate Borisov in which he was not in the team and the, the issue of him being absent was raised again, you know. So mm. it, was, it was to do with that. Maybe Maybe it is to try and provoke a response. Maybe it is to try and find a solution uh, with the people at Arsenal. You know, again, we can just sit here and, and speculate. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, my cynicism came about the timing. I thought it was clearly about the the manager. You know, I thought it was clearly part of a sort of uh, to and fro, public kind of to and fro, bit of a power play. And I, if I'm honest, I am also uh, very suspicious of any professional athlete evoking the idea of supporting a team in the same way as a fan. Because just the closer you get to the game, I think the more you realise that is almost never the case. And uh, yeah. That makes me a bit sad, but that's the way it is, I think. Yeah, but yeah. that's just my perspective. Players kiss the badge and then they move on. Yeah. You know, it's it's a reality. It's a job for most of them. And it's not to say that players can't forge a, a, a real love for a club. Of course they can. Of course they can. But, you know, you can't... I think it's very hard. I think you're right, you know, to be a little bit cynical about the idea that, you know, uh, players are fans. They're not. They're players. They're doing a job. They're very well paid for doing that job. And also they've got, um, you know, they've got people behind them uh, and PR machines and social media managers and all those people who can who can make sure they say the right thing at all times. You know, mm. it doesn't stand up to any real scrutiny. Um, but there you go. I mean, yeah, we're slightly going around in circles at this point, aren't we? Because essentially... <laughs> I should have just said this at the top, but essentially there must be stuff we don't know. We hope it resolves so that we get to use Meza Ozil as we deem fit, which I, judging by Unai Emery's actions so far, probably won't be mm. 90 minutes every game, uh, but will at least be some of the time, maybe starting with Barto. But I, are you confident that'll happen? Um... Am I can't no 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 I mean I hope it does but like you I'm a little bit sort of of the opinion that if it was going to happen it would have happened by now but maybe sometimes James maybe sometimes things need to come to a head 
you know, mm. before they can get better. So maybe this is a gigantic blackhead on our season, I mean, and somebody has squeezed all the blackhead stuff out of it, and now, uh, you know, the, the skin can heal. Who knows? I mean, I, I don't know how you feel, but there were definitely times this weekend where I thought uh, fleetingly, well, the sooner we get Meza Ozil and Unai Emery out of this club, I just felt like I wanted to sort of wipe the slate and begin again. And after six months of a new regime, that's pretty grim, isn't it? It is, yeah. And I can't lie and say that that thought didn't occur to me, yeah. that the the toxicity of this situation doesn't reflect well on on either party or the club. And maybe, you know, just like you say, wipe it all clean and go in a different direction and see where that takes us. You know, realistically, I'm not sure that's possible. You know, um, no. it would take a real strong character to make that happen. And it would take people who were genuinely interested in making Arsenal successful again at the top to sanction that, you know? Mm. So I, you know, I can't see it, but yeah, look, it feels like, you know, when there's something there and it's festering away, you just want to sort of chop it off and go in a different direction. Um, the reality of football means we're, we're probably not going to be able to do that. But uh, look, we'll see whether we'll see whether next, I don't know, thirteen games left in the Premier League takes us, and also in the in the in the Europa League. I mean, I think we're looking at what have we got? Bate, then Southampton, then Bournemouth, then Tottenham then Manchester United. Where we are after that particular run of games could very well inform what we all think about where we're going and what should happen and who should be involved. <laughs> yeah, it's a big... I don't know why I'm laughing. <laughs> I think it's because I'm Terror? scared. Terror? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I feel relatively sanguine about Barto. Maybe that is naive. Uh, yeah, look, uh, you know... We we look. I I went into the previous game thinking we'd we'd win fairly comfortably, um, yeah. and we didn't. And maybe it was just one of those nights, a freak result, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, if we have two of those nights against Bate Borisov, then you you might say, okay, there's something yeah. really really wrong. But I can't imagine that we're not going to beat Bate. Um, and then two home games against mid-table opposition. Uh, against whom I, I must have a look. Have we lost? We beat Bournemouth away, and we lost to Southampton, of course, uh, mm. away. So, uh, what's kind of scary? Not scary, but kind of mad. Is it's only four weeks or something since we beat Chelsea, and it feels like you know the the positive uplift we had out of that result evaporated so so swiftly. Yeah. Um, I think obviously injuries have played their part in that too. But yeah, uh, the Spurs and the United sort of double header feels like it will really be decisive. And, you know, given how tough it will be to go to Spurs, uh, uh, you know, that United game, and given the fact that we're probably quite unlikely to catch Spurs, almost irrespective of what happens in that match, that United game particularly feels absolutely enormous. Mm. Okay, well, look, um, shall we take a break and come back in part two with more questions, which I'm sure will be about other things than Mesut Ozil and Unai Emery? I'm sure there are some, right? Tell me there's some. What's our best 11? Yeah, yeah I'm yeah. sure there'll be a few. <laughs> All right, look, we'll take a break. We'll come back with your questions and more in part two right after this.
you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter, at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog, and also on the Arsblog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog. Um, do you want to go first? I think you should go yeah. first. Go okay, I'll, I'll go first. You, you have the responsibility of taking this podcast in a completely different direction from the first half of the show. Okay, I'm just saving questions. <laughs> okay, well, these are two questions actually on the same thing, theme rather. Uh, this is from Dave Chopping, who's at Dave Chopping on Twitter. It says, if rumours are true of a transfer kitty in the regions of 40 million, do you think we need to consider selling one of our top players, Aubameyang or Lacazette, to help boost the funds and improve the overall squad? Don't want to, obviously, but it's so much needs improving. Mm. And Stuart Holmes says, would you sacrifice either Lacazette or Alba to bring in two top quality defenders? Mm, interesting. Dave Chopping, though, that's a good name. You know the way people, uh, surnames were um, became used, by, you know, someone's profession, like Baker. Baker, for example. Or yeah. Cooper, you know, because he made yeah. barrels. Right. Driver. Of I wonder course. what Dave Chopping's family, what their history is. They just like... Axe murderers. Yeah. All of them. Anyway, sorry, Dave. Long line sure, of axe murderers. They were probably uh, lumberjacks. That's what That's it was. much more innocent. Much yeah. more innocent. Yeah, that, that thought occurred to me, actually, about how we're going to generate some revenue to reinvest in the squad. And it did make me wonder if somebody this summer who we might not necessarily want to sell could be sold in order to boost the transfer coffers. Because when you look at the players who everybody would say are more or less dispensable in terms of the squad. You know, Mustafi, how much would you get from Mustafi? Uh, Elneny, how much do you get for Elneny or Jenkinson? You know, players who are on the fringes and we could make a good case for them leaving anyway. You know, Koscielny, Monreal, etc., etc. You're not getting a great deal of money for those players. So it might well be a case that one of the big players has got to be sold or could and be sold. 
are they kind of the only... I mean, in terms of sort of established players, they're the only real candidates, well, aren't they? Well, yeah. Aubameyang, Lacazette, um, Mkhitaryan. Mkhitaryan, yeah. But again, I feel like he, a little like the Ozil situation, I feel like his transfer value is probably mm. hindered by his salary. Yeah, I think so. Not in the same way as Ozil, but he's on 200 grand a week and he's 30 years of age. So it's about trying to find somebody who's willing to take on those wages for a player who, um, you know... Uh, I don't think he's worth those wages mm. personally, but that's uh, that's neither here nor there. It's a reality of the market that we'd have to find someone to take that wage on. One player who I think could potentially generate some revenue is Granite Xhaka. Ah, that's an interesting mm. idea. I've not heard posited elsewhere. He's certainly under long-term contract, isn't he? He is. He's whatever he is now, 26, is he? How much? Something like all that. Those? Let me, I mean, if only we had a handy tool I know, in front of us. Find out. He is 26. 26 years of age. 27 at the start of next season. Right. So he's got a long contract. Um, I'm not sure that he is quite as indispensable to our midfield as maybe he was considered to be earlier in the season by mm. Unai Emery, who, you know, and Arsene Wenger played him all the time as well. You know, is this his third season? Yeah. So it's his third season. I think he's at a, least. Yeah. I, I think he's a good player, but a player with some flaws in his game that haven't really gone away as he's matured. You know, some of the defensive issues, the defensive lapses are still there that were there at the start. I mean, I think in terms of discipline, he's better. Uh, and I think that part of his game was slightly overblown, to be perfectly honest. I don't think he was ever uh, that bad when it came to red cards. And, you know, I think a couple of them were ridiculous. But as a player and you're looking, OK, how could we generate revenue to to invest in the squad? He would be a candidate for me. Yes, I can see the logic there. Uh, what about those two strikers? Would you could you even contemplate losing one? Well, we're losing Welbeck. Um, Which, can I just say I, I understand why, but the more I think about it, the more I'm like, is I, I, I'm not sure I fully agree with that decision. Surprise, surprise! I love Danny Welbeck, but uh, you know, I, if you were to ask me right now, should we give Welbeck a couple of seasons, maybe a two-year deal? Something yeah. like that. I think I would go for it because we we don't really have the depth that we should have in the front three. And he certainly gives us that. And, you know, it's not necessarily to say that Danny Welbeck is the guy who's going to suddenly blossom and get us 20, 25 goals a season. But if our transfer funds are that restricted and we don't have the ability to invest as much as we would like in new players, why are we? Why let him go for free? I mean, is he going to want a yeah. big pay rise? I don't I think mean, so. Even if you put him on a two or three year deal and sell him after a year, yeah. he still won't be thirty. You know, you'll still be able to get some money for him. It's really bizarre, especially we're pinning quite a lot of hopes on Eddie and Ketia, but I think everyone agrees he needs to go out on loan. So you imagine that will be what will happen to him next season. You need a guy to be that third striker. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I don't 
quite follow why we're not keeping Welbeck because I think buying a third striker is going to cost us quite a lot of money. Yeah. So there's a good yeah a good case to be made for for doing something there, unless we absolutely have faith that Reese Nelson, for example, is the guy who can fill Welbeck's place in the squad, and we want to make room for him. Then you can see some logic to it. Maybe I mean like, I think they're quite different players, though. You know. Yeah. I mean, no. No. I agree. I agree. Nelson's not a centre forward. Um, yeah. Even if he has played a bit there this season for Hoffenheim, he's been played as a forward, but. You know, like you say, give Welbeck a three-year deal and sell him after a year. You know, put a clause in even. If it's a relatively cheap clause, you're still making some money back on him. I mean, how old is Danny Welbeck? If only there was a handy tool available to us. (laughs) What we learned is we don't know how old our players are. Danny Welbeck is 28. 28. So are you telling me if you give Danny Welbeck a three-year deal, that next season if he scores, if he stays fit, I mean, look, the fitness issue is... That is an issue. That so. is an issue, but, you know, I think he's just been really unlucky. Um, some players continue to have bad luck, though. But, you know, 29-year-old Danny Welbeck, England international, could easily bring you in at least what we paid for him, which was, what, yeah. £16 million? Pounds? We could easily get £20 million, pounds, £25 million. Pounds. Yeah, so. I mean, the, sh- the ship may have sailed now, but just the more I look at it, the more I wonder, is that a smart move? Especially, I suppose, when you look at our restricted budget and you're like, well, how mm. the... I know his salary won't be yeah. nothing. I'm sure he earns a decent amount of money. But, um, but I mean, anyway. of, the, of the two strikers, who would you see as the more well, dispensable? I mean, it's such di- a difficult question, that, because stylistically they're so different, aren't they? Yeah. Um, Lacazette's, you know, I think about a year and a half younger than Aubameyang. Well, how, old how, Danny, how old is Danny? How old is Alex Lacazette? If only there was a <laughs> handy Lacazette, tool, I think, is 20... Seven, 27. Now, 28 at the end of the season. Yeah. So two years younger, because I think Aubameyang will be 30 in the summer. Um, so from that point of view, maybe Lacazette. I think Lacazette does offer you more all-round, really, than Aubameyang does at the mm-hmm. moment. Uh, and Aubameyang is someone who we're often accommodating in kind of not his natural position, you know, right wing, left wing. I know his goals record is sensational. I'm don't, please don't, Message me saying I'm selling, we should sell Aubameyang. Um, but I have wondered if it might happen because I could see a really big club like a Man City or a Real Madrid saying, We need to win now, let's get ourselves Aubameyang for two years. Really? Um, I, ca- I can't. Can you to not? Be, no, not really. Not really. I mean, I, you know, I think maybe it would give some clarity to the centre forward situation. Where if Aubameyang is your main man, you're not having to pick and choose. Maybe it brings some clarity to the way that you play. Yeah, you know, I think if it's just in terms of pure goals, even though he's a couple of years older, Aubameyang in the short term might be the the better one to keep. And that's not to say I don't like Lacazette. I do like mm-hmm. Lacazette. I think he's had a good season. Um, but in terms of his efficiency in front of goal, I'm not sure it's up there. Uh, even you know, even though Aubameyang has missed loads of chances. Uh, he scores more goals, so... I suppose I would countenance it if I felt like it came with a plan. Do you know what I mean? So if Mm. it was like, we're selling one striker because we've made a decision that we're going to play this way and we're going to support that striker with the right kinds of players, then I think maybe I could get on board with that um, if the money was appropriately reinvested. But it's not something I'm in a hurry to do. They're both quality players, you know, and they are... Mm. They are where we are strongest at, at present. Um, 
Yeah. Can I do another question? Of course. Uh, now, where is it? It's along a similar theme. It's from David McNamara, who's at DVD MCN, and says, given, I guess this is aimed at you, Andrew, given what you've just written this morning, uh, or he does say Andrew, so it's definitely aimed at you, um, should we prepare ourselves for the 60 million sale of Gunduzi, if rumours are to be believed? If it's how we need to approach the market going forward, is it better to get used to it now? This is a story about Gunduzi. PSG. I think. Where, where did it come from? I have no idea. Uh, what is this source of this? It's very much the new Barcelona coming back from Sesc, isn't it? Because Gunduzi was in the PSG Academy. Ah, um, okay. Here's where it came from. The Express. So, frankly, it is a load of bollocks. <laughs> absolute nonsense, which I think we can dismiss. But if we want to take the, the situation or if we as want a to... As a hypothetical. Would I take it? I, I'm not sure I would, to be honest. I mean, I'm not fully sold on the idea that Ginduzi is going to be the greatest midfielder of all time or anything like it. But I, I feel like there are areas of our team in which we need to maintain some measure of consistency. And when you look at it, Genduzi at 19 and Lucas Torreira at 22 potentially could be our midfield for three or four seasons if they're given time together to work together. And I feel like with Arsenal at this moment in time, Growing young players into top class players is our best strategy or our most likely way of becoming competitive. So, would I take 60 million for Ginduzi now to invest in what? Steven and Zonzi in the summer? No, I don't think I would. I'd rather take the chance on Ginduzi continuing this upward curve um, that we all hope he's on alongside Torreira, and all of a sudden we have two players who could be worth £80 million each, something like that. But I think we have to, uh, at some point, invest in young players, and I don't just mean financially, I mean in terms of how we use them and how we play them. And of the squad, he's one of the the top candidates for that. So I, I don't see it as a a good idea, even though it's, you know, obviously complete bollocks. I, I don't know if I agree. I I think if I, if I was offered 60 million, it's right on the cusp for me of what I would sort of begin. 60 million and one. Yeah. (laughs) I, I suppose the way I'm thinking about it is, you know, yes, if you sell Gunduzi and buy Steven and Zonzi, that's a real fuck-up. But if you sell Gunduzi and buy six Gunduzis, do you know what I mean? You've, you... But we just lost the guy who got the one Gunduzi. How are we going to find six of the fuckers now that Sven is gone? Well, that is my concern too. Uh, and so it's all about what you do with that money. I just think historically we're so bad at selling. And I think as encouraged as you can be about Gunduzi, maybe I'm just an Arsenal fan who's been burnt by Danielson. But... You know, I can't help but feel like you never know with a young player. You can have the most talented young player in the world. 
you could have Jack Wilshire. He might get injury problems. You never know mm, what will befall course, yeah, a yeah. young player. So I feel like sixty million for what we have now is a very, very good price and would, you know, double our summer transfer budget. And if we spent that money well, then again we could be in a position to to recoup again. I just think we're so, so bad at, at selling players and I think um that sort of money. I mean, it would be the most money we've ever received for an Arsenal player. Uh, I would have to think very long and hard about it, at the very least. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Even though it is from the Express and therefore... Absolute bullshit and probably not going to happen. Absolute bollocks, yeah, for sure. Okay, Peter Hoost, who's that Peter Hoost, says, are we in a better situation than a year ago? If so, how? Uh, gosh, that's <laughs> nice easy question. one yeah I know I think we are in a better situation because I think a year ago we were maybe not a year ago but a year and a couple of months ago certainly before Rouse and Yehi and Sven were appointed <gasps> let me ask you something before you go on with this I'll go on what what's your uh, just? It's a complete aside, but it's based on something I heard from somebody who I absolutely trust and spoke to this weekend. What's your understanding of how the Wenger departure happened? Uh, my understanding, and I don't know, but my interpretation of the sequence of events was essentially that he was probably told. Listen, mate, there's, you know, we're going to call it a day at the end of the season. And, right. uh Could you front up and, uh, you know, it's up to you if you choose to go on your terms. If you don't go on your terms, you'll go on ours. Right. I was told he blindsided them and made the decision himself. Really? Yeah. Which I thought was but quite interesting. That is interesting, do you think, though, that that precludes the idea that they would have made that decision anyway? No, I mean, I suspect yeah. that his decision might have been made, you know, having heard a few whispers about yes, the potential yes. of him being told. But I just thought it was quite... Interesting that there was no direct conversation. Yeah. You know, he just went for it and announced it. So there yeah. you go. I can believe that too. Yeah. I can believe that too. Anyway, um, back to the back to the other question. The other question was, uh, are we in a better position a year ago? I think we are fundamentally because I think we are in a, a process of flux and change. And th- some of that change is painful and it's not a straightforward, uh, linear progression. But fundamentally, I think we were trapped in a, you know, a bit of a sort of purgatorial period where we were not really moving forward. You know, there was a lot of stasis at the club in a lot of respects. And now things are moving and evolving. Mm. Um, you know, even Sven being appointed and then going, or, you know, a new coach coming in, uh, new personnel. I think that we are moving forward, and it's not, it's very clearly not linear. You know, we are having ups and downs, but it feels like there's no permanence to it. You know, if it doesn't work out with Meza Ozil, we can maybe let him go. If it doesn't work out with Unai Emery, you know, we can maybe let him go. You know, there are things that, it's not all sacred, so it doesn't feel like, we're going to be stuck with it for years and years. I mean, one of the really interesting things is to what extent is Raul Sanyei accountable? Uh, to what extent is he responsible? To what extent is he under pressure? You know, you don't want to end up in a situation where he becomes Mr. All-Powerful. You know, he basically takes up the Wenger baton as the guy who makes all the decisions and who we 
feel like we're a little bit stuck with. But mm. aside from that, hoping and believing that he's he's not that sort of fella, uh, I think we are in a better position based purely on the fact of change and the potential for change. Yeah. yeah. What do you think? I'm, I'm sort of with you on that in the sense that we, we had to, as a football club, modernise and move to the kind of structure which is uh, more common throughout the game. You know, you don't have the, the one manager anymore. Very few clubs have that. The Ferguson-Wenger-type uh, manager is not what happens these days, right? So the manager who runs every aspect of the club from transfers to scouting to, you know, contracts and all that kind of stuff, you know, it just doesn't happen anymore and the top coaches don't want to work in those kind of structures and we had to move in that direction. So whether we're better or not yet is another question. I think it's a process uh, to uh, borrow a phrase from our friend, Mr. Emery, but, you know, we, we had to do it sooner or later. So from that point of view, we're not going to get to the end destination until we start the journey, if that makes sense. The thing that counters that for me, just are we in a better position, a better situation than a year ago, we're now 100% owned by KSE. Sure. And I don't think that's better even if Usmanov was a lame duck shareholder. Um, that's the thing that really concerns me. Uh, you know, the lack of urgency from there to make us successful. Uh, you know, I think they view this as a process that is going to take some time, that they're prepared to give it time and maybe a few years for things to be rebuilt. And on a rational level, you can sort of see why that makes sense, mm-hmm. right? We, we have been on a downward spiral. You have to correct the, the downward trajectory. Then you have to build yourself back up again. You know, you don't just go from up to down or down to up, you know, in a, in a heartbeat, particularly if the owner's not going to invest any money. So they're looking at running the club in a different way and, and what have you. But I'm concerned, obviously, about KSE and about Kroenke and about the, the potential that they have to to run this club in a way which is not based or grounded in any reality. You know, they talk about wanting to win things and being successful, but unless the people they put in charge are fucking amazing and super smart and super efficient at doing their jobs, you know, and that's Sanyei and that's Vinay and, and all these guys, we're going to struggle simply because of the lack of investment in the squad. And that's what it boils down to. So from the point of view of having to make the change and go in a different direction, yes, I think it's a, a better situation or certainly could be a better situation in the long run. But the KSE ownership is a, a cloud over that for me. I, I would concur. Can I just jump in on something you said yeah. there about how long they might be prepared to give it? And I think I have this sort of increasing sense that everyone at Arsenal may be unified in the idea that from from the point Arsene Wenger left, that there was a two-year project at hand. And I tell you, part of the reason I think that is... I just look at some of the decisions made tactically, um, even in terms of the transfer market, you know, the idea that you would send Reese Nelson out on loan for an entire year, even though bringing him back in January could have been beneficial. There was mm. kind of a bit of an element of long-term thinking of, no, we'll leave him there, we're going to bring him back in the summer. Uh, the fact that Unai Emery's on a two-year contract with a plus one, mm. according to reports, um, 
you know, the idea that, you know, I think we've got players in the squad now who they want to shift out. There is a sort of degree of turnover that's going to be required this summer. Uh, the fact that Emery appears to be able to sort of willing to kind of compromise on results in something like the Urzel situation. You know, I don't necessarily think he's using Urzel like a man who is under pressure to deliver top four this year. Yeah. Um, I have a strong hunch that they're all looking at it like a two-year project, uh, that he doesn't have to make top four this year, doesn't have to make Champions League this year. If he does, it's perceived as a bonus. And it will be at the end of next season that that project will be assessed and his third year either activated or not. And I must say, to me, that's reasonable. Like, I know people are impatient and there is this kind of idea that fans are kind of saying, oh, we need to give Emery 10 transfer windows, do we? We need to give him two decades like Wenger before (laughs) we can make a decision. I don't think many people are saying that. But I do think, given how far we'd fallen... Uh, and the gap that I perceive, certainly between us and like the top three teams, and maybe even you know fourth position, I think two years is a realistic and reasonable time frame to try and do that rebuild and get us back to that spot. Yeah, uh, and, uh, and when you look at the, what the club are doing, I sort of suspect they have that timeline in mind too. Mm. Yeah, I mean, from what I've heard, you're right about that. Uh, when it comes to the Champions League. You know, I think we can all see how beneficial it would be for Arsenal to get back into the Champions League this year, whether it's by Europa League or a top four finish. We can all see why that's uh, a good thing in terms of the Mm. reputation of the club, in terms of the money that it generates, in terms of, you know, uh, a sense of progress Mm. In some we, in some way, because I think we need that as fans, right? We need to we need to start seeing the the green shoots, which we can latch onto and say, okay, well, we're going to be in the Champions League next year. It's going to be better when we're playing our our U- European games at home against some of the bigger teams in Europe, and not against Bate Borisov or whoever the fuck yeah. we played this Vorskla, and you know, with with all due respect to those clubs, which is. Uh, quite and not minimal. At six PM or whatever. Yeah, exactly. You know this. This. You know this. This club needs um, things which fans can latch onto again and start to believe in because it feels, you know, a bit like um, some of the the early season hope and goodwill has has gone by the wayside, and I can, I can understand that. Um, but I don't think that it's make or break for Unai Emery to reach top four this season no I don't think it is and like you I don't think it's necessarily reasonable to place that demand on a coach if you're not going to back him in the January transfer window which we didn't if it's a case that this summer this squad undergoes a serious rebuilding and we move on some players we move on some fringe players uh, you know we we put an end to the Mesut Ozil era one way or the other I don't know you know if we then go in this particular direction which will be I guess um, directed by Emery and what he wants to do with the team and the way he wants the team to play and we bring in new players and we play a certain way next season and we don't then get into the Champions League or we don't become more competitive, then I think you can have a real sit down and think about where you're going and is he the right man to do it? Like, I mean, I'm not saying I don't have doubts about him because I kind of do. The Bate game 
caused some real nagging doubts in my mind uh, about Unai Emery. Uh, but I think ultimately you have to give him till the end of the season to to judge his performance. And it's not fair really to judge a manager who hasn't been backed in the transfer window particularly after he's lost three important players to injury and not been or not had any replacements brought in. You know, that's almost unfair. So as much as we're anxious to get back into the top four, I'm not sure that anxiousness is shared by the board and the owners. Um, It's whether they're prepared to live with all the flack that goes with it. That's the, the question. I guess they are. I guess they are. They did January without bringing in anyone, so... Yeah, I mean, bold move, certainly, in the circumstances. Um, right, Have you? did you ask that question? I forget. I did. Oh, I did. OK. Can I... Uh, sorry to do this to you, but can I briefly veer back in Mesut Ozil's direction? Of course. Why not? Um, it's been so question, long since we've spoken about Mesut Ozil that I feel, I feel a longing... Uh, <laughs> uh, well, Benjamin Rodriguez asked this question on uh, Facebook. We also had it from John Barker on Twitter. Uh, Benjamin says, some Arsenal players have liked Ozil's post that you claim to be calculating, probably so. However, do you think it's a sign that Ozil's being treated unfairly by what's going on and his teammates support him? No, I just think they like Dennis Bergkamp and they like Mesut Ozil. And I, I don't think, I don't think there was anything more to it than that. People said Dennis Bergkamp liked this, therefore it could not be in any way cynical if if the great Dennis Bergkamp even liked it. How could you know? Yeah. And I'm, I just think Dennis Bergkamp, uh, if he's running his own Instagram, had a look at Mesut Ozil's and went, "Oh look, Mesut Ozil's brought out one of my quotes. That's nice. That's nice. I like that." <laughs> and Iwobi and, you know, Iwobi, who's a, an Arsenal boy through and through, I think he was one of the players who liked it, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. He's going, oh, yeah, Dennis Bergkamp. Fucking love Dennis Bergkamp. And, you know, he feels like he belongs at Arsenal. You know, I don't think Mesut Ozil is unpopular among no, the I Arsenal players. I, I don't I think that's the it. case. You know, I mean, he was he was right there, wasn't he, when all the boys were out? you know, sucking air out of balloons or whatever it was they were doing. He was right there in the middle of it, you know, so he's a popular lad. I don't think they are necessarily looking at it in the same way that we are. So I don't think it's sort of um, tacit approval of anything one way or the other. No, I don't get the impression that the players are throwing Emery under the bus over his treatment of Mesut Ozil. I don't personally think that's what's happening. Mm. But I know there are people who do. Mm. Um but it doesn't look like that to me. When I look at our players, and to bring in the Barté game, for example, I don't think they look like they are not trying or not motivated. Uh, and there were times under Arsene Wenger I did feel like that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, even Alex Lacazette sort of being so frustrated, he got himself sent off. You know, to me, that tells you that there is a kind of, you know, I feel like the will and the desire is is actually more so there this season than it has been for many seasons. I feel like our issues are sort of uh, technical and tactical, you know, but I don't feel like there's a... I don't feel like they're not playing for the coach. No. I feel like there might be some issues with what the coach is asking them to do and translating that to the pitch, but I don't feel like they're sort of, you know, throwing the towel in. No. No, I don't either. Which is maybe more worrying. 
Because in the past, <laughs> in the past, it was like, we know they're good. Do you know what I mean? But it's like, well, of yeah. course, they're talented if they turn it on, but they, they don't seem to be bothered. Whereas now, I think they, they, for the large part, do seem really bothered. I mean, they're running more than any other team in the league, aren't they? They're running more than we've ever run. They're putting the miles in, but the what we're getting out of that isn't yeah. as good. We come back to that identity. Yeah. That identity thing. Uh, okay, here's a question from Megan Cantle, who's at Megan Cantle 99. Uh, with Rambo and Czech retiring at the end of the season. Poor Rambo, he's retiring. He's retiring. Oh, oh my, God. my God. Holy moly. That's news to him. Sorry to, uh, <laughs> sorry to announce. I knew Serie A was a, a slow pace, but I didn't know it was that bad. <laughs> anyway, I guess it was with Rambo leaving and Czech retiring at the end of the season. No guarantee how much longer Koscielny and Ozil will, will be at the club. Should Xhaka be become club captain next season and who else should be introduced into the captain group no we should sell him you just told me this earlier well um, <laughs> I just said he was potentially he's potentially, potentially somebody who could be sold. I fa- have a feeling that that theory of yours will have a fair bit of support out there on the interwebs I am um, who should be club captain I don't know. I mean, Ursel's probably going to wear the armband against Barté on Thursday, isn't he? We're going to be like, what's going on here? Mm. I, I, um, I would like to see Hector Bellerin as captain. Yeah. Maybe. I, I could dig that. I could uh, dig that. He is, of course, going to be out injured for the start of the season. Um, didn't stop us with Koscielny this time around. But, yeah, I, I, I think in the long term, you know, he's someone who's come through at Arsenal, who... Uh, I think, to me, is emblematic of a lot of Arsenal values. You know, we talk about that a lot. What is the identity? What are the values? Arsenal was like, protect the values of the club. And I feel like his kind of cosmopolitan, uh, liberal, stylish manner, to me, reflects what I think a lot of the modern Arsenal is about. I know that's anathema to some people, but, you know, I, I love Hector Bellerin. Yeah. And uh, I, I would... He's very erudite. He's intelligent. I think he'd be a great ambassador. I think he plays with unquestionable commitment on the pitch. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm looking through. I'm looking through the squad, and I, you know, Socrates, maybe, but beyond that, Rob Holding, Carl. Also, his, historically, we use the <laughs> historically we use the armband, you know, to convince someone to stay at the club and keep suitors oh, at bay. That means he'll be sold a year after we give it to him, though. So, no, let's not. Yeah. <laughs> I want Hector to uh, stay. Yeah. I mean, looking around, I, I can't see many other contenders. No. Xhaka is, is, is a contender, I think. If no, he, he is, yeah. And look, I think Xhaka will probably stay. You know, I'm not saying that this is going to happen, but... And he is, if he is going to stay and there's a show of faith in him... Um, then he is one of the obvious candidates, for sure. And he might rise to it, you know. Sometimes players do. I think people think there's no kind of influence of an armband. It doesn't really mean anything. And I think there's a lot of mileage in that theory. But sometimes a player can take on a bit more responsibility as a mm. consequence. I mean, Socrates as captain would be fun, I think. But, you know, is he here, you know, is he a long-term choice? Yeah, yeah. I guess it's just uh, I just picked him out because he's one of the most experienced players. yeah. In the squad, and he is—he does have real leadership qualities. But you know, part of part of the issues that people had with uh, some of our captains in recent years is the fact that they weren't on the pitch mm. very often. And you know, as you get to a certain point in your career, you're more likely to miss games through injury, or you're you're being left out because as a younger guy coming through, 
Um, that, yeah, that's why I chose Bellerin because I just he's, if he's fit, he's an absolute nailed-on starter. Yeah. He could also introduce instead of an armband, the captain's hairband, and that would really piss people off. Yeah, yeah, multicolored, different kind of <laughs> styles of hairbands exactly. and armbands uh, every week. Have you got one more? Rob Holding. Uh, what about Rob Holding? Rob Holding. Rob Holding. Rob Maybe. Holding. Arsenal I think we captain. see him come back. I, I think he's definitely potential in the future. Why not? Um, mm. But I think we need to see him come back and see what level he comes back at. Uh, have I got one more? Uh, I do, actually. Where is it? Let me have a think. Oh, it's not bloody here now. You know, it's absolutely... Oh, this is it. Ollie Tucker. I've got it. OK. At Ollie Tucker 93. Uh, Ollie says, I wanted to ask a serious question about whether Arsenal is entering a second unforeseen austerity period but I can't think of a good way to word it. So in the absence of that, what's the biggest animal you think you could single-handedly cling film to a lamppost? (laughs) Um, That's a really good question. Because you'd have to hold the animal against the lamppost with one hand, presumably. Right. While you sort of cling filmed around it. With the other, but that would be hard because the cling film would kind of sort of get wrapped on itself and, you know... It, uh. Oh, OK, I'd have to have a think about this. I reckon... Because, you know, you, you think about big animals and you start at, like, cats and dogs, then cows and giraffes and rhinos and yeah. things like that. But I reckon something like... A, a python or an yeah. anaconda cuz what you could do is get the get the snake i mean you'd have to lure the snake from wherever you know snakes live that big i assume assume we've got it there for you right okay you've got the we've snake done there the legwork okay there. snake's there in front of me i fucking biff it one right in the side of the head right right snake out cold. Andrew Mangan, snake hunter. Yep, he's absolutely out cold. Snake is just gone. Okay. Gone. It's my technique, you see, in the the biffing. So then you hold a snake upside down mm-hmm. and you cling film its head, just leaving enough room for its mouth to get out so it can still breathe, the head end to the bottom of the lamppost, the street level part of the lamppost. Right. And then work your way up. I assume that you're allowed you some kind of stepladder or something like that. There's no suggestion that we couldn't use... You don't have to scale the lamppost yourself. No, though. exactly. I'm not, I'm not good at climbing. So I reckon a 20-foot, 20 22-foot python or anaconda or whatever the biggest snake in the world is, I'd say that is probably the biggest animal I could cling film to a to a lamppost. Here's my question. Okay. Could you cling film a whale to a lamppost? Like, assuming we got the whale there. Well, it's single-handedly. So, you know, whales, uh, by their very definition, yeah. are very fucking heavy. You could They're really it. You heavy. get it under the whale. Nah. Nah. You just wouldn't. Plus, the whale would die because it's out of water. And we should be... There there may have to be casualties if we're going to answer this question. Maybe so. But, you know, I think we could pick something better than whales. whales. Yeah, Yeah, whales are good. 
Whales are good, like, living in the deep, sending out their sonar shit, just going around, being fucking whales. And, you know, too many people have it in for whales, Mm. I reckon. What about a cow? I feel like, because you could sort of go under the udders, and I feel like cows don't move quickly. Like, a cow, is it running away, or is it just going to let you cling film it to a lamppost? Yeah, would a cow just stand there going, what the the fuck are you doing? And then before he knows it... yeah. 20 minutes later... He's cling-filmed. He's, he's all cling-filmed up. Yeah. Don't people wrap themselves in cling-film to lose weight? Is that a thing? Because um, you sweat a lot and you get thin? I don't know if that's the case, but I do remember Tony Adams speaking, uh, probably in his book, maybe it was his first book, where when he was still drinking, he would wrap himself in black plastic bags and then put his training gear on, and he felt like doing that would help him sweat the alcohol out of himself. In hindsight, that's probably really dangerous. God, that sounds absolutely horrific. But I don't know why you would wrap yourself in cling film to lose weight. I feel like it weight. happens in The Full Monty, which I know is not a documentary. I mean, could you use cling film as a kind of uh, homemade girdle? Like, let's say, for example, in a year's time, you grow quite large with food. Yeah. You develop a massive belly, but we've got to go to an important event together, and you need to look okay. slim and trim. I need like to wear if, a, an Arsenal Puma top. Exactly. Tight. No, yeah, a sure. new a new Arsenal Adidas. Oh, a new Adidas, top Adidas of yeah, exactly. So, if you were to suck your belly in, could I wrap you in cling film and just keep your keep your belly in there, sort of like a girdle? If you wrapped it tight enough, mm. yeah, I think you could. Right. I I think I could cling film. A cow to a lamppost. And anyone who doesn't believe me, you know where to find me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Come one, come all. Yeah. I'm ready. Mess at Cowsill. <laughs> you could do that. That would make it uh, fun. All right. Okay, well, let's see. I don't know what anybody else thinks they could. Like, what about... What about... There's probably, like, a really clever answer to this. Like... A tapeworm. Is a tapeworm an animal? You know the way sometimes a tapeworm and they really take long. it out of a... And yeah. it's like 57 feet long. Is that bigger than like a 22-foot anaconda? There it could be the answer. I mean, depends how you're measuring it, by length or by weight. I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway. Well... I, you know, we knew it was going to be a busy podcast today with lots of interesting questions. We didn't necessarily anticipate that one. We didn't, but I think we've given a good uh, good account of ourselves in, in both regards, yeah. <laughs> as much as possible. Um, to everyone who uh, listens, thank you very much indeed for being with us again. Hopefully we've not uh, upset too many people out there, but hey, what can you do? It's just a podcast and we're just two guys with microphones. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's literally all we are. <laughs> and a load of clean uh, film, by the way. And so much clean film. I'm, I'm steeped in the stuff now. I'm wearing it right now. Yeah. If it doesn't make you lose weight, this was a mistake because yeah. I don't know how I'm going to get out. Okay. Well, look, hopefully nobody attaches you to a lamppost today because I think, uh, you know, it could backfire quite spectacularly. Um, yeah. Somebody would recognise you. Oh, look. There's James there from Blind. That's that guy. Got enough cling film. Got enough cling film, mate. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, look, we've got Bate Borisov on Thursday. We'll discuss that on the Arsecast on Friday. Uh, until then, take it easy. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 